Okay, so David's actual talk is called Rumour, Conspiracy and Propaganda. So take it away, David. Uh, thanks, Dave. Thanks for uh, having me. Uh, yes, this is a, uh, a synthesis of two chapters uh, from this book, What to Believe Now, uh, chapters four and five. Uh, and I've just attempted to squeeze them in together into something new because uh, there are things connecting them. Uh, and uh, you'll notice, especially if you think I'm going to cut a little short of the plan, that there are some fairly glaring gaps in the argument. <laughs> Uh, that doesn't mean I haven't thought of them and doesn't mean I haven't got answers to them. I hope you'll bring them up in question time and I'll be able to, uh, to fill them in then. Uh, let me begin then with the, the way rumour and conspiracy theory, I'm going to link them here. Rumour and conspiracy theory are closely linked in both the popular imagination and academic debate, with rumour standardly portrayed as a vehicle of conspiracy theory. They're also linked in as much as they're both typically thought to be bad things. <coughs> In this paper, I'll defend rumour and conspiracy theory, along with rumour mongers and conspiracy theorists, against some of their more prominent critics. And I'll argue that campaigns against them are a form of propaganda, or to be precise, two closely related forms of propaganda. So uh, beginning with rumour, uh, now, uh, I'll just give you a quick uh, account. This is a very, very simple account, a slightly oversimplified version of uh, what I think rumour is. Uh, I can elaborate it later on, but I think just for the purpose of this talk, uh, these are the two things which I think are constantly found in the literature on rumour, and I think <coughs> together uh, they constitute necessary conditions for a communication to constitute a rumour. Uh, so individually they're necessary conditions. Together uh, they are sufficient. So uh, the first is that uh, it's communication has to have spread through many informants. Uh, rumours are essentially things that spread, that they are transmitted from word by word of mouth through many people, and the further they spread, the more fully they deserve the name rumour. Uh, and second, it must lack official status, and I'll say shortly, uh, more shortly about uh, what that involves. But the first part of this talk will just deal with those two features of rumour. Now, the spread of rumours uh, is a feature that's uh, long been noted on them, uh, of them, and uh, there's a model of rumour that's out there uh, that many uh, people who discuss the topic, I call it the Chinese whispers model of rumour. So uh, anyone familiar with the game, uh, children's game, Chinese whispers, will know roughly how it goes. Uh, I pass a message on to you, you pass it on to the person behind you, uh, you pass the message on there, it comes all the way around and eventually gets to Steve, and Steve passes it on to me. And the original message has been comically transformed into something uh, quite different from what it was beforehand. Now, a lot of people think that's, that's what rumours are like. The classic study of this, uh, the psychology of rumour, uh, by Gordon Alcott, <coughs> excuse, by Alcott and Postman, has an experiment in which precisely that happens. He has a bunch of volunteers. The first volunteer looks at a picture which no one else can see. The, uh, describes the picture to the second volunteer who describes it to a third volunteer and Orpah and Postman watch this progress and what, what you think happened. Originally, the reasonably accurate description of the picture becomes increasingly <coughs> distorted until by the end of this process there's a completely distorted, inaccurate picture. And Orpah and Postman take this to be what rumours are and they take the distortions which they observed <coughs> to be characteristic of rumours in general, and they conclude their book, The Psychology of Rumour, with the following words, so great are these distortions that it is never under any circumstances safe to accept rumour as a valid guide for belief or conduct. 
Now, <coughs> despite uh, a lot of people, you know, enormous influence of this book and, and people still accepting these experiments, uh, a little reflection should show that these uh, reflections are fundamentally flawed. Though it's a very attractive idea, it's a very old idea. I hear a quote from Alexander Pope, which uh, seems to express very much the same idea from the Temple of Fame. The flying rumours gathered as they evolved, scarce any tale was sooner to heard than told. And all who heard it added something new, and all who heard it made enlargements too. So it looks like uh, all Port and Postman have done this neat thing that provided scientific confirmation of this old thought about rumours. Uh, it's not just rumours this thought exists about. We'll see this uh, in John Locke, this idea that the further along a chain of transmission a message is, the more distorted it's going to be. Locke isn't talking here about rumours as such. He's talking about what he calls traditional truths, or what we might call old history, uh, with which he had a very low opinion, uh, as is common amongst empiricist philosophers. Uh, I think he's also wrong about that, but uh, move on. Now, what's wrong with the Chinese whispers model of rumour, specifically just focusing <coughs> on what's wrong with Allport and Postman's experiment. There are some glaring differences between the circumstances of the experiment and real rumours in the world. And I'll just go through six of them quite quickly. First, those spreading the real rumours can cross-examine their sources. They can ask questions. Uh, second, those spreading real rumours will typically have some prior knowledge of the subject matter. They're not pictures taken out of any context at all, but something which they have some prior knowledge of, some uh, prior beliefs about at the very least, uh, that's why they're interested in it. Uh, three, those spreading rumours will typically know their informants in the experiments, of course they don't, they have no way of assessing the reliability of the person who's talking to them. Four, those spreading real rumours can give estimates of plausibility to the rumours content, that is, they can say how likely they think it is and why. Uh, they can say, I just heard, I don't believe myself, this is the story that's going around. Uh, and so on, the person who hears it can make a judgment based on that. Fifth, real rumours do not travel in the unilinear fashion of the all-port and postman experiments. They can branch out, they can reconverge, and you can hear rumours from a variety of different sources and they can confirm each other. We've got more details in the book about how that can happen, but it uh, should be intuitively clear that that can happen. And sixth, I think this is perhaps the most important point that should be obvious that these is not present in the experiments, is that those spreading real rumours do not have to spread them. There isn't a game, as there is in Chinese whispers, in which you pass on whatever you hear, no matter how bizarre it may be. Uh, you pass it on, and uh, <coughs> you may well choose not to pass it on because you judge it to be incredible, because you judge it to be unbelievable. Now, <coughs> what does all this mean? Put some equipment six points up uh, for now. All this means that uh, <coughs> fundamental problem with the all sort of postman experiments and the literature which is based on them is that it presupposes rumour mongers are completely passive in the face of the information they're given. They're like imperfect recording and transmitting devices through whom information like noise is gradually distorted. But each of those six points show that people have resources available to them to do more than merely produce an inferior version of what they've heard. They're able to use these resources to get the story straight in their own mind and minimise distortion, they're also able to evaluate the internal consistency of the story itself as well as its consistency with other things they already know. This in turn can put them in a position to reject part or all of the rumour if it's unlikely to be true, modify parts of it that are unlikely to be wholly true and alter the content of the rumour <coughs> on the basis of plausible hypotheses about how it came to be modified in the telling. And all this means that not only is it not inevitable that rumours will become increasingly distorted as so much of the literature presupposes that is less accurate as they spread, 
it's perfectly possible for them to become more accurate as they spread, and we'll come back to empirical evidence of this shortly. What is more, even if the rumor doesn't become more accurate as it spreads, the very fact that it has spread, and this is uh, point six, may constitute evidence that it is accurate, has uh, in academic terms gone through an increasingly rigorous process of peer review. <coughs> now this is not a mere theoretical possibility. There's empirical evidence that at least in certain circumstances, I'll talk about those circumstances later, rumours that survive and spread are more likely to be true, either because they were true all along, or because they became true, or more true, as they spread. During the Second World War, the United States military tried to limit the spread of rumours among troops. They were worried, the military was worried, so not because rumours tended to be false, but because they tended to be true, and there was a danger they might spread to the enemy, giving them important military intelligence, especially about planned troop deployments. The military tackled this problem by regularly redeploying troops to break up the normal channels along which rumours passed. Now, Theodore Kaplan, who's given the job of studying these anti-rumour campaigns, found that although this strategy didn't stop rumours from developing, it did have the desirable, <coughs> that is desirable from the military's point of view, effect of making those rumours less accurate. Kaplow accounts for this phenomenon in the following passage. Distortion in terms of wishes and avoidance seems to be an individual rather than a group characteristic. As channels solidified, this phenomenon became comparatively rare, despite in 1946 about his studies, because of the exclusion of persons associated with previous invalidity. When they were broken up, which was the effective campaign against wish fulfillment again became conspicuous, and the room started to become less and less accurate, which was desirable, and that's the, that was the cause of the goal. Okay. So the survival and reproductive success, to borrow some Darwinian language of the rumours Kaplow was studying, appears to be partly dependent on them being disseminated by people widely known to be reliable sources. Judgment about the reliability of one's source is part of an overall judgment about the plausibility of what one is told. Not only is there empirical evidence that rumour mongers make such judgments, there is also empirical evidence that they can be quite good at it. Kaplow cites numerous examples of rumours becoming increasingly accurate as they spread, and he found, I quote, a positive and unmistakable relation between the survival of a rumour, both in terms of its time and diffusion and its veracity. Now, it should be clear by now that the distance of rumours from an original source, <coughs> an original eyewitness account, <coughs> does not constitute a general reason for scepticism about their veracity. On the contrary, such distance may make belief in rumours more warranted. Uh, <coughs> I'll skip out this particular circumstance because it's not really relevant to this point. Okay, and the second characteristic we saw uh, essential to rumours uh, are their unofficial status, and that's what I want to move on to now. I've said that for a communication to be a rumour, it must have spread through a large number of informants. Although this is a necessary condition, it's not sufficient. Robert Knapp, a doctoral student of all courts, captured another important feature of rumour when he defined it as, <coughs> and I quote, a proposition for belief of topical reference disseminated without official verification. And that draws our attention in that definition to the fact that rumours are essentially unofficial things. Now, elsewhere I've argued... So that's... Uh, that's uh, his definition. Yeah. Elsewhere I've argued that to describe a communication as official is to say that it is endorsed by an institution with significant power, <coughs> especially the power to influence what is believed, at a time and place at a certain time place. Government statements are one particularly obvious kind of official communication, but they're not the only kind. To characterise rumours as unofficial communications, then, 
is to say that they lack a certain kind of institutional endorsement. <coughs> Does this feature of rumours imply that believing them is always or typically unjustified, or that we should op- adopt an attitude of prime facie scepticism towards them? Nat clearly thought so. He claimed that, quote, rumours are more subject to error than formal modes <coughs> of transmission. But this is, at best, a contingent truth. Whether rumours are more or less subject to inaccuracy than formal modes of transmission will depend in part on what the available formal modes of transmission are. In some societies, rumour may well be more accurate than any available formal mode of transmission. <coughs> For example, in the Soviet Union in 1953, Bauer and Weicker found that the majority of people believed that official information was less reliable than, quote, word-of-mouth communication, and that this belief was particularly widespread among the better-educated classes. Now, who could doubt that this preference for rumour over official information in this particular environment was justified? Now, of course, the level of trust in official information in our society is much higher. What is more, a higher level of trust is clearly justified. Does that mean, in our society at least, we should agree with Knapp and other critics of rumour that we will always, or at least typically, be more justified in believing official information than rumours? It seems to me that this view both exaggerates the reliability of official information and underestimate the reliability of rumour. Neil Levy has argued <coughs> that it is, quote, almost always rational to accept official information, where this is characterised as information, quote, promulgated by the authorities. Now, it seems to me that Levy's position trades on an ambiguity. There is a sense in which official information can be identified with information promulgated by the authorities, and there is a sense in which it is almost always rational to believe authorities but they involve two quite different senses of the word authority. (coughs) We can call the former sense institutional authority and the latter epistemic authority. In the institutional sense, being an authority just means being entitled to speak on behalf of a certain institution. In the epistemic sense, being an authority means roughly being particularly well informed about a subject. I accept that we should almost always believe epistemic authorities on the subject on which they are authorities, but it does not follow that we should almost always believe institutional authorities, and hence that we should almost always believe official information, as Levy says. Indeed, the dangers of the view that we should almost always believe institutional authorities, and hence official information, should be evident. It may be that in some kind of ideal society, official information would carry an epistemic authority such that it would almost always be rational to believe it. But that is not our society, nor I suspect is it any society that's ever been or will be. What is more, if such a society were to come into existence, it would inevitably be unstable since it would lead to complacency about officialdom that would be exploitable by officials hoping to manipulate public opinion to advance their interests. To the extent that the view that we should place our trust in official information rather than rumour gains widespread acceptance, official information will be less subject to scrutiny and, as a result, less likely to be true. So I conclude that characterising rumour <coughs> communication as official should be seen as epistemically neutral. An institution can have the power to influence what is believed for epistemically good reasons, for example, its power might result from it having a well-known track record of accuracy. On the other hand, an institution can have the power to influence what is believed for epistemically bad reasons, for example, it might have that power because it has a virtual monopoly on the dissemination of information, or because it seeks to confirm the irrational prejudices of consumers of its information. Okay, next section, have I missed something? I've argued that two things are essential for a communication to be a rumour. First, it must have spread through a large number of informants. Second, it must have not have been endorsed by an institution, institution with official status at the time and place of question. Neither of these characteristics provide any reason for being sceptical, that's any general reason for being sceptical of rumours. 
Now, of course, I may not have fully understood the nature of Uma. There may be something else about it which justifies its bad reputation. I'll consider two possibilities. <coughs> First, C.H.A. Cody suggests that Uma deserves its bad reputation because, by definition, it, quote, lacks a strong justificatory base. To illustrate his position, he considers a report originating from the Peruvian embassy in Japan, which reached the American ambassador to Japan in January 1941, according to which the Japanese Navy was planning a surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. The ambassador dismissed the report <coughs> on the grounds that it was just a rumour. Of course, we now know that the report was accurate. Cody says, two th says, considers two things that we might say about this case. The ambassador could have been right in his assessment of the general reliability of sources in the Peruvian embassy. On the other hand, it might have been his assessment of their credibility that was at fault, and the communication may not have deserved the title of rumour. And it seems to me uh, to be slightly the wrong view. On this view, we can only determine whether a communication is a rumour once we've determined whether it came from a reliable source. If it came from an unreliable source, we may call it a rumour, otherwise not. It seems unsatisfactory for two reasons. First, there are many communications which come from unreliable sources which, which are clearly not rumours. For example, eyewitness accounts by people with poor eyesight and poor viewing conditions, or official statements by compulsive liars. If we make rumours unreliable by fiat, as Cody suggests, we face the challenge of explaining what distinguishes rumours from other unreliable communications in a way that leaves rumour as the interesting important phenomenon I take it to be. And I don't see how that can be done. If it can't be done, then just stipulating that rumours are unreliable is entirely ad hoc and can only be understood as a way of suggesting falsely <coughs> that communications which are spread through a large number of informants and which have not been officially endorsed uh, should not be believed. Second, if rumours by definition lack justification, as the suggestion on the situation says, <coughs> it seems that those who exhort others not to believe rumours are making a purely semantic point. Of course, that is not what they claim to be doing. The anti-rumour industry, which is extremely big, do not claim to be writing these huge books making this trivial semantic point. They claim to be establishing the illegitimacy, and since already some means by which they attempt to do so, of rumour as a substantive fact, even the kind that can be experimentally demonstrated, not a trivial definitional one. Another approach opponents of rumour could take would be to say, not that belief in rumours is by definition unjustified, but that rumours themselves are by definition false. I don't know of anyone who explicitly makes this move. Nonetheless, the assumption that rumour, rumour is a synonymous with false rumour, is implicit in quite a bit of anti-rumour rhetoric. Cass Sunstein's recent book on rumours, for example, <coughs> is tellingly subtitled, Why Falsehoods Spread? Why We Believe Them, What Can Be Done? <coughs> you notice it's not called false rumours but you wouldn't get that from the subtitle. <coughs> as, if <we> could <coughs> uh, sorry, as if we could just assume that rumours are false. Although Sunstein occasionally seems to accept that not all rumours are false, all the rumours he discusses are false, or at least clearly believed to be false by him, and he moves from trying to explain why people believe false rumours to explain, trying to explain why people believe rumours as if there is no difference between these tasks. He certainly doesn't occur to him at any point that sometimes people believe rumours because they have good reason for believing that they're true. Now, stipulating that rumours are false, <coughs> which he does by implication, not explicitly, would be just as ad hoc as stipulating that they're unjustified. It would certainly make nonsense of the ordinary concept of a rumour 
<coughs> for example, we standardly think of rumours as things that can be confirmed, but one cannot confirm something that is false by definition. Uh, now, the next section, the anti-rumour campaigns is uh, anti-democratic propaganda, is the propaganda link uh, of the rumours. Has Sunstein's objections to rumours seem to boil down to a worry that people will accept unofficial rather than official sources of information? Sunstein is particularly concerned that people might wrongly lose faith in government as a result of believing false rumours. has a long lamentation about this. He does not consider the possibility that they might rightly lose faith in government as a result of believing true rumours. Sunstein cons Sunstein's concerns, <coughs> such as in Stalin's Russia example, Sunstein's concerns that governments and other powerful institutions will lose credibility and hence their ability to control information is typical of anti-rumour campaigners in general. Critics of rumour invariably, explicitly or implicitly invoke an ideal of official control of information where official is understood in the broad institutional sense I've outlined above. It's an ideal closely associated with the ideal known in Indonesia as guided democracy, according to which voting can be left to the people as a whole so long as the information on which they base their vote is controlled by a political elite. It should be obvious that guided democracy is not democracy at all. I've got an extensive argument that it's not democracy at all, but that's checked where that. I hope it's intuitively clear that you know, guided democracy is an oxymoron. <coughs> Sunstein repeatedly characterises rumours as, as a threat to democracy. The fact that some rumours are true is simply ignored, as is the fact that rumours true or false are an important check on institutional power. It is, I suppose, conceivable that a rumour could constitute a threat to democracy, but rumour itself is not a threat to democracy. Critics of rumours who want the state and other powerful institutions to have a monopoly on the dissemination of information are. Returning now to the subject I mentioned earlier and the circumstances in which rumours are particularly likely to be accurate. A recent study by DeFonso and Bordia <coughs> of workplace rumours <coughs> found <coughs> sorry, of rumours that travel through established organisational settings such as workplaces found uh, that they tended to be accurate. This was a finding which surprised them both. Uh, here's a quote from it. Turns out, they said, the reputation of the workplace rumour as inaccurate is itself inaccurate. The reason for this disparity is puzzling. If the overwhelming majority of rumours that are recalled were true, why did the overall impression of rumour tend not to be credible? They're talking about the fact that rumour has a bad reputation, including workplace rumours. <coughs> We've noticed this pattern repeatedly. When asked about rumour overall, people classified as false or low-quality information. When asked to recall specific rumours, people tend to report true or high-quality information. <coughs> now, DeFonso and Bordier had a number of uh, explanations which I think very unsatisfactory for why there is this disparity between actual rumours and people's uh, impressions of them, but I think the reason for the disparity is actually quite straightforward. <coughs> Those responsible for the dissemination of official information, that is, institutions with considerable influence over what people believe, typically have a vested interest in maintaining or increasing that influence. Hence, they have a vested interest in giving unofficial information, such as rumour, a bad name. Given their power over what people believe, it should not be surprising that they've been quite successful in doing this. In short, it seems clear that rumour's bad reputation is a consequence of propaganda, and false propaganda at that. In fact, the propagandistic nature of official campaigns to discredit rumour has long been evident and used to be quite explicit. During the Second World War, Robert Knapp, who we've already mentioned, was put in charge of the Division of Propaganda Research in the United States. That's when they called a spade a spade. Uh, <laughs> they don't call it that anymore, of course. 
uh, in this capacity, was responsible for setting up what became known as rumour clinics. His guidelines for these cl clinics included the need to, quote, assure good faith in the regular media of communication, the need to, quote, develop confidence and faith in leaders, and the need to, quote, campaign deliberately against rumour mongering by showing its harmful effects, its inaccuracies, and the low motives of the originators and liaisons of such tales. And uh, just remember, as we've already seen, other American officials at this time were worried not because rumours were inaccurate, their real concern was that rumours were accurate. That was the genuine, real cause of concern. So on the one hand, you know, they've got this problem, rumours are accurate, and this is the problem, uh, and their solution to it is to try and persuade people that rumours are actually inaccurate. Okay. <clears throat> we've already seen that many... Now, it's understandable and perhaps legitimate for officials to seek tight control of information, both true and false, in times of war. Nonetheless, the anti-democratic nature of such campaigns should be clear. What is more, these campaigns did not end with the war. Knapp's rumour clinics developed into rumour control centres, which can be found in every major American city to this day, <coughs> under the auspices of the US Department of Justice. Anti-rumour propaganda continues to be endemic in our society. Cass Sunstein is not just an academic, he is a close advisor to Barack Obama and head of, quote, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. Word propaganda, of course, no longer appears there. Where his responsibilities include overseeing policies relating to, quote, information quality. It is not surprising that someone in his position should try to persuade people not to believe communications which have not been officially endorsed. So much for rumour, now for my defence of conspiracy theory. Several authors have claimed that there are more conspiracy theories and more conspiracy theorists now than in the past. That conspiracism, or conspiracy thinking, is on the rise. Typically these authors say or imply that this situation is undesirable. And some have been moved to offer solutions to this so-called problem. Indeed, there's an enormous body of literature on this. I think this is all a mistake. If anything, there are fewer conspiracy theories and theorists now than in the past less conspiracism and conspiracy thinking, and it is this situation that should be deplored. Furthermore, this deplorable situation is at least partly brought about by the contemporary fashion for castigating certain people as conspiracy theorists and dismissing their beliefs as conspiracy theories, a fashion which appears to be started by fellow philosopher Karl Popper, which is why I feel it's an obligation to debunk it. These expressions were not widely used before Popper. Popper used them pejoratively, and they've retained those pejorative connotations to this day. So, but what, <coughs> what are conspiracy theorists and theories, and what is supposed to be wrong with them? Now, the sheer diversity of mutually incompatible answers to, pop, answers to that that Pop and his followers have given uh, <coughs> itself speaks volumes. <coughs> there do seem to be people who appear to think that conspiracies never happen, that is, that no one ever conspires to do anything, and hence the conspiracy theorists are mistaken in the same way that flat earth theorists are. That is, there are people who believe in a phenomenon that simply doesn't exist. I think we can safely ignore this view. Even Popper is at pains to stress that conspiracies occur, and most of his followers will concede the point at least when pushed. On the face of it, that should be the end of the matter. Since conspiracies happen, it can't be irrational to believe that they happen. Hence, it can't be irrational to be a conspiracy theorist. Yet many people accept the premise but fall at the conclusion. They agree that people conspire, but insist nonetheless that conspiracy theorists are irrational or in some other way misguided. When challenged to explain what they mean by the expression conspiracy theorist and what exactly is supposed to be the matter with being one, they typically respond with, 
Of course there were conspiracies, but, dot, 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 much of the rest of this paper was devoted to different ways of filling in the but end of that sentence. <clears throat> First one uh, you often hear is, of course they're conspiracies, but they don't happen often. That's 1.1 uh, right there. Perhaps conspiracy theorists are people who fail to recognise how rarely consp conspiracies occur. Hopper provides some support for this way of understanding who conspiracy theorists are and where they go wrong. When he claims in conjectures and refutations that conspiracies are, quote, not very frequent. But Popper is just wrong about this. Conspiracy is a common form of behaviour throughout history and in all cultures. I don't have time to establish that here, but I do recommend this book to you, especially the work by Charles Pigden in there, uh, which attempts to establish this. Prior to Popper, no one appears to have thought otherwise. Indeed, Popper himself takes it back in, uh, <coughs> certainly appears to take it back in the Open Society's enemies, where he admits that conspiracies are, quote, a typical social phenomenon. In other words, they're not there after all. <coughs> okay. Uh, the second line uh, opponents of conspiracy theory often move on to once that, uh, once that runs dry is uh, conspiracies tend to be insignificant. Okay. Several authors have suggested that conspiracy theorists go wrong not by overstating the frequency with which conspiracies occur, but by overstating their significance when they do occur. On this view, you can believe in as many conspiracies as you like, so long as you do not believe they are particularly important. Again, Popper provides somewhat support for this way of understanding who conspiracy theorists are and what's supposed to be wrong with them. He claims that conspiracies do not, quote, change the character of social life, and that were they to cease, quote, we would still be faced with fundamentally the same problems that we have, that have always faced us. But Popper himself effectively admits that conspiracies can be important when he says, and I quote, Lenin's revolution and especially Hitler's revolution and Hitler's war are, I think, exceptions. These were indeed conspiracies. Now, with exceptions like these, it's hard to put much faith in the rule. Just to be clear, Lenin's revolution was the October Revolution, which brought the Bolsheviks to power and created the Soviet Union. Hitler's revolution was the revolution which brought the Nazis to power in Germany, and Hitler's war was the Second World War, at least the European theatre of that war. <coughs> All of these conspiracies have had enormous impact on the character of social life, and it's hard to imagine bigger social events than those ones. <coughs> uh, <coughs> and it's not as if these exceptions Popper mentions are the only ones. Uh, so it's simply not true that we'd be faced with fundamentally the same problems we're faced without conspiracies. Popper himself has conceded that. The third uh, fallback position uh, opponents of conspiracy theory often come up with is 1.3, that conspiracies tend to fail. And this is the only one which has an antecedent I think that I've ever been able to find earlier than Popper. Machiavelli once said that experience demonstrates that there have been many, that <coughs> that there have been many conspiracies but few, few have been concluded successfully. So he, uh, he rejects 1.1 but embraces 1.3. In a similar vein, Popper claimed that, that few conspiracies are ultimately successful. Conspirators rarely consummate their conspiracies. More recently, I won't keep going, the obvious Daniel Pipes that runs a similar line, 1.2. This suggests that the problem with conspiracy theorists is that they are people who postulate mainly successful conspiracies and that this is irrational. This objection is sometimes conflated with the previous one. In fact, it's constantly conflated with the previous one, but the two objections should be distinguished. A successful conspiracy can be unimportant, and a failed conspiracy can be quite momentous. The failed conspiracy <coughs> by Soviet generals against Gorbachev in 1991 brought about, or at least hastened, the breakup of the Soviet Union. 
Likewise, the failed conspiracy by Richard Nixon and his associates to cover up a burglary at Watergate Hotel led to his resignation. Now, the collapse of the Soviet Union and the resignation of the American president are both, by any standards, <coughs> momentous historical events. The idea that conspiracies tend to fail is very widespread and seems to be what a lot of people are getting at when they object to conspiracy theories and theorists. Conspiracy theories are often contrasted with cock-up theories, with the suggestion that the latter are always, or at least typically, preferable to the former to go back to Berlin. But popular though this idea is, it's wrong in two respects. First, conspiracies and cock-ups are not incompatible. A cock-up is a plan or endeavour which fails through incompetence. If I'm not trying to do something, I can't cock it up. And since conspiracies are a plan of a certain kind, it's perfectly possible to cock them up. Second, although conspiracies have been known to fail, there's no reason to think that they're more prone to failure than other kinds of human endeavour. Indeed, it's hard to see why people will continue to conspire if the historical record really showed the activity would be so pointless or counterproductive. Are conspirators particularly stupid? There seems no reason to think so. Perhaps the argument is that conspiracies are not ultimately successful because they often have consequences that are neither intended nor wanted by the conspirators. This may be the line Popper and his followers are running when they accuse conspiracy theorists of ignoring the unintended or unwanted consequences of social action. But the fact that conspiracies have unintended and or unwanted consequences from the point of view of conspirators does not entail that they are particularly prone to failure. For most, and perhaps all human actions have unintended and or unwanted consequences from the point of view of the actors, but that surely does not entail that most and perhaps all human activity is doomed to failure. To suppose that it does would be to lose our grip on the distinction between failure and success. Is there any reason to suppose that conspiracies are more likely to fail than other things people do? Well, you might argue, in fact this is surprisingly popular argue, that since secrecy is essential to most definitions of conspiracy, all the conspiracies I've mentioned, I could mention a lot more than I have, but I'll through this a little bit, <coughs> have failed in as much as they're not secret. After all, I know about them and if you didn't know about them before, now you do. <coughs> These examples show that there are conspiracies, indeed that there are lots of them and many are important, and, but they also show, on this line of thinking, that conspiracies tend to fail, but that they tend to be exposed in the end. This is a common uh, line out there. This seems to be Pete Mandick's reasoning uh, in an article he wrote called Shit Happens, when he denies the belief that Al-Qaeda blew up the World Trade Center is a conspiracy theory on the grounds that it isn't a secret. Now, the argument that conspiracies tend to fail because they always or usually end up being exposed is mistaken in two ways. First, there's no reason to believe the premise is true. Second, the conclusion does not follow from the premise. Why accept the premise that conspiracies always or usually end up being exposed? The argument is that all the conspiracies we know of are no longer secret, therefore it's reasonable to conclude that conspiracies tend not to remain secret. Now, there's an obvious selection effect going on here. Uh, it's closely parallel to the notorious argument Berkeley, Barclays that nothing exists without thought because everything you can think of is, at the time in question, being thought of. In both cases, there's a clear selection effect. I can't provide you with examples of objects which are not being thought about because the process of trying to find examples inevitably involves me thinking about them, but that doesn't provide any evidence there are no objects without thought, and similar goes for uh, the point about conspiracies. Okay. <coughs> Even if it were true that conspiracies tend not to remain secret, and it's impossible, of course, to get any genuine data <coughs> on this, the conclusion they tend to fail would not follow. To suppose that it would is to interpret the secrecy required for successful conspiracy in far too strict a way. In such a way, in fact, that conspiracy will count as a failure if anyone other than the conspirators ever finds out about it. 
But conspirators, at least the ones we know about, typically have much more limited aims than that with respect to secrecy. They want to keep their activities secret from some people, usually the targets of the conspiracy, and those who might sympathise with them for some period of time, often only until the deed they're conspiring to do has been done. Indeed, many conspiracies need to be widely publicised once the deed is done. This appears to have been the case with the Al-Qaeda conspiracy to blow up the Twin Towers. <coughs> the object of the exercise was not just to strike a blow against the great Satan, but to publicly be seen to have done so. And it was certainly the case with Julius Caesar's assassination as well. Okay, uh, so what, uh, moving on to 1.4 uh, as another fallback position. Now, just believing in lots of significant and or successful conspiracies is not usually on its own enough to get you accused of being a conspiracy theorist. A great deal depends on whom you attribute the conspiracies to. No matter how many conspiracies you believe the North Korean regime is involved in, no, and no matter how important or successful you think those conspiracies are, no one is likely to call you a conspiracy theorist unless you also think that Western governments or Western government agencies are involved. So perhaps the error of conspiracy theorists <coughs> is that they fail to recognise that neither Western governments nor their agents conspire, or that they rarely do, or that it doesn't matter very much when they do, or that they rarely achieve their aims when they do. Uh, now, I'm not going to dwell on that, but let's take that to be obvious absurdity. It's worth just noting, I think, at this point, that the expression conspiracy theorist is very much analogous to the expression terrorist in the way it's used in public uh, but uh, <coughs> uh, I won't insult your intelligence by pointing out falsehood of that position. Uh, let me just move on uh, then to uh, uh, section uh, two, uh, conspiracy theory and the open society. <coughs> Despite the bewildering variety of uses of these expressions, they are standardly used to divide those in Western countries who believe that their governments or other powerful institutions in their society are engaged in conspiracies or important conspiracies, successful conspiracies, etc., etc. This usage serves to intimidate and silence such people whether or not their beliefs are justified and whether or not their beliefs are true. Hence, this usage makes it less likely that such conspiracies will be exposed or exposed in a timely manner, and more likely that the perpetrators will get away with it. Hence, there's reason to think that pejorative uses of these expressions have had the effect of making societies in which they occur less open. There's sad irony in the fact that Popper, the author of The Open Society and Its Enemies, should have started a <coughs> practice, which I've argued elsewhere is a witch hunt, a witch hunt against conspiracy theory, won't go into that in detail now, which has made it less likely that conspiracies will be exposed and so made it easier for conspiracy to thrive at the expense of openness. My account of the different things people are getting at when they accuse others of being conspiracy theorists was not meant to be complete. Those interested in the variety of uses of the expressions should consult my two collections on the topic. But behind the heterogeneity of uses, there's a clear common thread. A person who is accused of being a conspiracy theorist believes or is interested in investigating something <coughs> which conflicts with a view which has achieved a certain status, that of being an officially sanctioned or orthodox view in his or her society. Indeed, this expression is sometimes used of such people even when their so-called conspiracy theory does not involve a conspiracy. I've got some examples that I won't put on there. <coughs> Understood in this way, the relationship between conspiracy theories and officialdom is similar to the relationship between rumours and officialdom, with the difference that rumours are defined as merely lacking official endorsement, whereas conspiracy theories, at least on this way of understanding them, must actually contradict some official version of events. What if we accept a definition of conspiracy theory along these lines? Would that justify adopting a dismissive attitude towards conspiracy theories? No, as we saw during the discussion of rumour, 
to say that a version of events has official status should be seen as epistemically neutral. Hence, to say that a conspiracy theory by definition contradicts an official version of events is to say nothing about whether it's true or whether a person who believes it is justified in doing so. The expressions conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorists are the respectable modern equivalents of heresy and heretic, respectively. These expressions serve to castigate and ridicule anyone who rejects or even questions orthodox or officially endorsed beliefs. Uh, so now moving on to section three, conspiracy baiting as propaganda. The propagandistic, the propagandistic nature of campaigns against conspiracy theories and theorists is at least as evident as the propagandistic nature of campaigns against rumours and rumour mongers, and it's not surprising that many of the same people are involved. Both forms of propaganda serve to herd opinion, or at least respectable opinion, within limits set by governments and other powerful institutions. Cass Sunstein and Adrian Vermeule's recent Conspiracy Theories, Causes and Cures, which was recently published in the Journal of Political Philosophy, is a particularly clear example of this. Sunstein and Vermeule <coughs> define a conspiracy theory as Quote, an effort to explain some event or practice by reference to the machinations of powerful people who attempt to conceal their role, at least until their aims are accomplished. <coughs> now they can see that some conspiracy theories are true. I've already mentioned many things that fit that, which are obviously true. And some are justified, that is, believing them is justified. Nonetheless, they propose to focus on the ones that are, quote, false, harmful, and unjustified. Now, not only do they focus on such bad conspiracy theories, they repeatedly refer to conspiracy theories as if we could just assume that they have one or more of these undesirable characteristics, namely false, unjustified, harmful. They claim, for example, that, quote, conspiracy theories are a subset of the larger category of false beliefs, and assuming that they are false, and that they are the product of, quote, crippled epistemologies. Hence, they not only ignore, but implicitly define out of existence when it suits them, conspiracy theories that are true, beneficial, and or justified. Talking about conspiracy theories as if we could just assume they are false, harmful, and unjustified is, given their definition, tantamount to assuming that ex explanations which posit secretive behaviour on the part of powerful people are false, harmful, and unjustified. And we've already seen that not only some, but many such explanations are both true and justified. They may, of course, still be harmful. In the following passage, Sunstein and Vermeule explain <coughs> the kinds of harms that conspiracy theories can do. That's the quote at the top there. Such theories, and he's talking about conspiracy theories here, can be harmful, can have, sorry, have pernicious effects from the government's point of view, <coughs> either by inducing unjustifiably wide, widespread public scepticism about government assertions, or by dampening public mobilisation and participation in government-led efforts, or both. Now, is there a point of view other than that of the government which might be worth considering, such as that, I don't know, say the citizen? They do not say. Nor do they consider the possibility that widespread public scepticism about the government's assertions might be justified, or that the public might be right not to want to participate in government-led efforts. Now, putting these concerns aside for the moment, what should government do about the problem of people being unjustifiably sceptical of what it says and unjustifiably unwilling not to do, to do what it wants? Now, you might have thought that the solution lies in greater openness, honesty, and accountability on the part of government. Sunstein and Vermeule take a somewhat different approach. And this is the next one. Our main policy claim here 
is that government should engage in cognitive infiltration of the groups that produce conspiracy theories. In this way, they tell us, government will be able to undermine, this is sorry, it's a quote again, undermine the crippled epistemology of believers by planting doubts about their theories. Now, of course, they go on to say governments can't be entirely open about their participation in these programs. Hence, Sunstein and Vermeule recommend that, quote, government officials should participate anonymously and, or even with false identities. In other words, Sunstein and Vermeule recommend that government should engage in conspiracies in order to undermine <laughs> belief in conspiracy theories. Of course, there's a danger that the targets of these proposed government conspiracies will find out about them. Sunstein and Vermeule can hardly dismiss this possibility since they claim that in open societies such as the United States, quote, government action does not usually remain secret very long. If the targets of Sunstein and Vermeule's proposed conspiracies were to find out about them, they would, of course, believe even more conspiracy theories, albeit true ones, than they did before. <clears throat> this would, of course, be counterproductive from the government's point of view, which is the only point of view that gets looking. So what should the government do in these circumstances? It's not absolutely clear what Sunstein and Vermeule would recommend. They do say that, quote, as a general rule, true accounts should not be undermined. Nonetheless, they regard as an interesting question whether it's ever appropriate to undermine true conspiracy theories. Now, there appears to be, and there is, a glaring inconsistency between Sunstein and Vermeule's assurances that governments can't get away with secrecy in open societies like ours and their advocacy of government secrecy and, indeed, deception. I assume they don't mean to suggest that the cognitive infiltration they recommend is doomed to failure. But mere pragmatic inconsistency is the least of worry for the worries raised by their paper. Shouldn't we be worried by the prospect of government officials secretively and deceptively manipulating public opinion? Shouldn't we be especially worried when someone like Sunstein, who, as we saw earlier, is himself an extremely powerful government official, recommending that government officials behave in exactly this way? Isn't it possible that government officials might try to undermine not just false, unjustified and harmful conspiracy theories, but also true, justified and or beneficial ones? Sunstein and Vermeule are reassuring on this point. Throughout, we assume, they say, a well-motivated government that aims to eliminate conspiracy theories or draw their poison if and only if social welfare is improved by doing so. But why should we assume that government is well-motivated or that it will always seek to improve social welfare rather than, say, its own welfare? What reason can we have for abandoning the defining insight of liberal political thought, i.e. that we just can't assume that governments are well-intentioned and will act in our interests rather than their own, especially when it comes to actions that are carried out in secret? And it's a striking thing that Sunstein has a reputation in American public discourse as a liberal. That's how twisted that word has become. All Sunstein and Vermeule have to say in defence of this assumption is that it is a standard assumption in a certain kind of insight, that it is a standard assumption in policy analysis. Now, it is indeed a standard assumption in a certain kind of policy analysis, not the kind, of course, that John Stuart Mill or John Locke would have engaged in, but a certain kind, namely government propaganda, <coughs> which is, in this case, somehow found its way into the journal of political philosophy. Okay, so, uh, just finally, let's move on to what is to be done. Now, in looking at different ways of understanding what people are getting at when they accuse others of being conspiracy theorists, we've seen that the expression conspiracy theorist, like its close relative conspiracy theory, is multiply ambiguous. What is more reflection on each of the standard ways of understanding <coughs> what it is to be a conspiracy theorist shows that there is nothing wrong with being one. In fact, in each case it is those who accuse others of being conspiracy theorists who are guilty of irrationality, or at least error. Now what should someone who recognises this do about us as the what to be done section? 
The first and most obvious response would be to stop using the expressions. The expressions only came into fashion uh, in the 50s, building up in the recent decades. Perhaps of communism to a large extent they've, they've replaced the pejorative communist. <coughs> uh, so, stop using them. The goal would be to create a word in which the expressions conspiracy theorist, conspiracy theory, conspiracism, and so on would be as recognised as products of an irrational and bigoted outlook. In this world, people would be ashamed to dismiss a view on the grounds that it's a conspiracy theory or a person on the grounds that he or she is a conspiracy theorist, as they would be to dismiss a view on the grounds that it is heretical or a person on the grounds that he or she is a witch. Of course, attempts to create such a world may not be successful. We can expect them to be resisted by those who find it easier to dismiss people and their views with sound bites than to argue with them or consider the evidence. An alternative strategy, therefore, should be considered that of retaining the expression but without the negative connotations. The words witch and queer have both come to be used quite widely in non-derogative ways. In fact, these words have come to be embraced by many of the people in the past who have been most likely to be maligned as witches or queers. Perhaps the expression conspiracy theorists could be transformed in a similar way. Along these lines, I suggest that it would be reasonably applied to people of particular interest in investigating and publicising conspiracies when they occur, who's responsible for them, and so on. This conception fits in quite well with the way we think of other kinds of theorists, for example, number theorists, as people who have an interest in a particular field of research rather than people who have particular kinds of beliefs. Conspiracy theorists, in this sense, serve a vitally important social function. In fact, being a conspiracy theorist in this sense is an important aspect of the job description of political journalists. <coughs> Those who resist either of the strategies I've suggested so far, getting rid of the expression conspiracy theorist or attaining it without the negative connotations, will point out quite rightly that some theories, theories which are criticised as conspiracy theories, and some people are criticised as conspiracy theorists, deserve to be criticised. We've seen that conspiracies are common, but some people presumably think they're more common than they are. We've seen that conspiracies often succeed, but some people probably think they succeed more often than in fact they do. We've seen conspiracies are important, but some people may think they're more important than in fact they are. Finally, we've seen that conspiracies by governments and government agencies of Western countries, such as the United States, are common, often successful and important, but some people almost certainly think they're more common, successful and or important than in fact they are. All these people are making errors, and some of these errors have been arrived at irrationally. What's more, some people sometimes characterise some of these errors as conspiracy theories and the people who are most prone to irrationally making them as conspiracy theorists. But this use of nomenclature is extremely misleading. In the first place, we're not talking about a single form of irrationality or error here, but several, and it can only promote confusion to conflate them. In the second place, each of these errors has an opposite. That is the error of underestimating the frequency of conspiracy, the error of underestimating the importance of conspiracy, the error of underestimating the frequency with which conspiracy succeeds, etc., etc., etc. Hence, it seems that at least as long as the witch hunt against conspiracy theorists goes on, we need to popularise pejorative expressions to denote those who in various ways irrationally dismiss evidence of conspiracy or evidence of its importance or evidence of its success, uh, and so on. Uh, <coughs> okay. To that end, I suggest popularising, has already gained a little bit of momentum on the internet, popularising the expression coincidence theorist. To denote those who, like Hume, are sceptical about inferences that go beyond the present testimony of our senses or the records of our memory. 
but who, unlike Hume, do not confine their scepticism to theoretical philosophy. Coincidence theorists are people who fail, as it were, to connect the dots, who fail to see any significance to even the most striking correlations. I have a... I don't know, Tom, let me just give you just one glimpse of what coincidence theorists at, at work is. I, I recently got to see uh, the TV footage of September the 11th um, um, flapping from network to network and, you know, first one tower's hit by a plane, then an out, another tower's hit by a plane. And all the commentators on CNN, on BBC, on all the shows that I watched on this are saying, wow, that's an amazing coincidence. Another plane is going to the building right next to it. <laughs> People are saying, well, you know, do you think maybe there's something, uh, something, there's something going on here? And they say, oh, don't be a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> so, I mean, it looks obvious, ridiculous uh, in retrospect, but uh, I think uh, our, our political culture is very much inured into being coincidence theorists about these kinds of things. It was obvious in that case there were hidden powers at work, though it wasn't obvious immediately who they were. Okay. <coughs> I'll come back to that in great detail uh, uh, if you like later on. <coughs> now, conspiracy baiters often accuse those they castigate as conspiracy theorists for believing there's no such thing as a coincidence. And they are, of course, right that there's such a thing as being too willing to postulate what Hume calls secret powers behind observed phenomena. But there's also such a thing as being too reluctant to make inferences beyond what we immediately perceive. Popularising the expression coincidence theorists to denote, to denote people who make this error would go some way towards promoting rational public debate. Coincidence theorists have an irrational tendency to reject clear evidence of conspiracy, but not everyone so inclined is a coincidence theorist. Some people, particularly on the left, have an irrational tendency to reject clear evidence of conspiracy for quite different reasons. I'll call them institutional theorists, which incidentally is what they call themselves. A typical example of institutional theory at work can be found in preface to manufacturing consent, where Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky, anticipating the accusation that they are conspiracy theorists, respond preemptively with the claim that, quote, we do not offer any kind of conspiracy hypothesis to explain mass media performance. Instead, they use what they call a propaganda model, which seeks to explain mass media performance in impersonal institutional terms and as, quote, largely an outcome of market forces. Now, the main problem with this line of thought is that impersonal explanations in terms of institutions and market forces are not inconsistent with conspiratorial explanations. Many institutions owe their existence, at least in part, to conspiracies. Think of the United, current United States government debt to its <coughs> conspiratorial activities of its founding fathers. And many institutions themselves regularly conspire. Indeed, many institutions are explicitly devoted to conspiring, the CIA, KGB, MI5, and so on, that's their job. What is more, market forces are not inconsistent with conspiracy. Indeed, as Adam Smith recognised, market forces <coughs> frequently, standardly unchecked, lead to conspiracy. Remember, Adam Smith said, people of the same trade seldom meet together, even for merriment and diversion, but the conversation ends in a conspiracy against the public. More generally, institutions and social forces are not, as Chomsky seems to believe, disembodied or abstract entities. They are the result, although not always the intended result, of a lot of intentional activity, much of which is conspiratorial. So an explanation can be, and often is, both conspiratorial and institutional. At the root of the institutionalist theorist's critique of conspiracy theorists is a concern not to offer excessively easy solutions to social problems. 
The worry is that conspiracy theorists encourage the idea that the road to societal improvement consists in the removal of bad people from positions of power, while ignoring the underlying structures that are the real cause of our problems. While there's certainly something to this concern, the alternate strategy of concentrating on systematic or institutional change comes with its own dangers. First, it could be unrealistic, at least in the short term where most of us live our lives. Second, as history has often demonstrated, the new institutions may be worse than the ones they replaced. The debate between conspiracy theorists and institutional theorists is reminiscent of the debate George Orwell discussed in his essay on Charles Dickens between the moralists and the revolutionaries, with the moralists taking the role of the conspiracy theorists and the revolutionaries taking the role of the institutional theorists. And of course, Chomsky is an institutional theorist, as is Marx and so on. I'll just do that. Okay, the moralists and the revolutionary are constantly undermining one another. Marx exploded a thousand tons of dynamite between the beneath the moralist position, and we're still living in the echo of that tremendous crash. But already, somewhere or other, the sappers at work and fresh dynamite have been tamped into place to blow Marx to the moon. Then Marx or someone like him, like Chomsky, for instance, will come along <coughs> back with yet more dynamite, and so the process continues to an end we cannot yet foresee. The central problem, how to prevent power from being abused, remains unsolved. Dickens, who had not the vision to see that private property is an obstructive nuisance, had the vision to see that if men would behave decently, the world would be decent, is not such a platitude as it sounds. We cannot stop power from being abused just by investigating and exposing conspiracies, but we also cannot stop power from being abused if we ignore the fact that much of that abuse is, and probably always will be, conspiratorial. Okay, just in conclusion, I've argued that the bad reputation of rumours and conspiracy theories, along with rumour mongers and conspiracy theorists, is not deserved. These things have a bad reputation as a, as a result of two closely related forms of propaganda, anti-rumour campaigns and conspiracy baiting. These forms of propaganda thrive wherever people are overly credulous towards formal authority. It's important that those who value independent thought and diversity of opinion, along with those who simply value the truth, that they, we see these the forms of propaganda for what they are. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, David. Um, we've got a bit of time for reasoned public debate. So, questions? Uh, Turkey. Hi. Thank Hi. you very much for the talk. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, I have three comments slash questions. Uh, first, uh, your argument that conspiracy theories, anti-conspiracy theory campaigns are like form of propaganda. Mm -hmm. It's also, like, you may want to look at the book by Jack Rettich. He wrote, like, uh, I think a few years ago, it was called Conspiracy Panics. And basically, he made a similar point there, saying that uh, like, this anti-conspiracy discourse is, is, is a form of governmentality. And he, he, he looks at Foucauldian concept of governmentality uh, through, through these uh, campaigns. And also, I thought you might also want to differentiate between rumors and conspiracy theories to, uh, to link those two arguments together. As well, in the literature on conspiracy theories and rumors, there's, there, it, it lacks a lot of like, uh, differentiation between them. Because many scholars look at the same events as, like, some scholars look at them as like, rumors and some others as conspiracy theories. And with regards to your solution to, I'm not sure about the third point you made, which is like a popularizing, uh, like, a, um, like a third solution you made. 
I think like the way to like um, um, challenge conspiracy <coughs> theories uh, uh, or pathologi patholo pathologizing conspiracy theories, the way to challenge this is to to show other to show people how they are actually positively used by mainstream politicians or by like people who who have normal political ideas, which could be achieved by by looking at any any political forums on the internet. Uh, yeah, I think these are my three comments. Uh, okay, and Jack Bradley called it? Jack Bradley. Okay, I haven't had a look at that. Uh, at some point. Um, so, what's your second point? Can you just. Uh, second point, you may want to just differentiate between rumors oh, and I, 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 do, I do differentiate between them. I, I, I think, you know, rumor is a perfectly legitimate concept, and it's always been around, you know, ancient Greeks had a god of rumor and a goddess of rumors. Uh, it, it's a perfectly legitimate concept. Uh, I don't think it should have the bad reputation uh, which it which it has. Uh, I think that needs to be uh, revived. Uh, some people recognise this to a greater or less extent. I think it's a reasonably well-defined concept. I've given a definition which I think is, uh, captures standard usage. Uh, conspiracy theories and conspiracy theories did not. It's it's all over the place. No, there's no uniform uh, sense given to these expressions whatsoever. Uh, it's simply used as, I suggest, uh, synonyms for uh, well, heresy and heretic, respectively. Uh, and you know, people some time ago realised that dissing things as heresy uh, doesn't carry a lot of weight because a lot of heresies turn out to be true. And uh, even if they're not true, they serve a certain so social function uh, and people would be ashamed these days to dismiss a view on the grounds of heresy. And I don't like to see as people adopting the same attitude towards conspiracy theories. Um, so that the third point is to, to challenge these anti-conspiracy theory campaigns. Mm -hmm. One could show how actually conspiracy theories <coughs> are actually part of mainstream politics. Yeah, look, uh, if, uh, what's frustrating about this, of course, you know, so-and-so conspiracy theories, ha-ha-ha, rubbish, so-and-so. Well, what's the matter? Don't you believe there are conspiracies? And so on. And typically, you know, the response is, yes, of course, you know, I have to believe it, <laughs> because you know, not only is it a common feature of nightly news, history, and everyone's personal experience uh, that it takes place, but then you know, of course there are conspiracies, but, and that's uh, what I've tried to break down uh, there. Uh, I mean, it is striking how few many of those, uh, many of those who sneer at conspiracy theories can name. Uh, I think that in itself is telling, uh, you get an awful lot of people say, oh well, Watergate, 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 but you know, that's only the very, very small tip of a very large uh, iceberg. Uh, I think um, conspiracy is a common form of human activity, always has been, uh, and it's particularly endemic in politics, and always has been, and always will be, I'm sure. Okay, there's a question over here, yeah. There is another argument for uh, uh, conspiracy's uh, tendency to fail. Uh, especially uh, conspiracies uh, cons uh, involving the more uh, more agents and uh, uh, on the long run, uh, the lack of uh, cooperation. When are uh, more uh, agents, uh, which uh, everyone uh, want to uh, maximize their own position, on the long run uh, they will end up like in the prisoner's dilemma uh, and uh, uh, without uh, the cooperation, uh, the common plan will uh, fail. What objections do you have in mind? Okay, well, look, I don't find that terribly persuasive argument. A uh, persuasive argument, then we should be skeptical about cooperation in general. 
but I don't think that would be obviously inappropriate because we are constantly cooperating all the time. I walk down the street, I walk on the left side of the road. <laughs> other people walk on the left side of the road. We succeed in walking past each other. Cooperation has taken place. I think uh, you know we wouldn't be able to build these buildings or have these universities without widespread successful cooperation. So it just can't be the case that there's some presumption against believing that people can cooperate successfully. They can. Okay, uh, Julian. Yeah, so I'm very sympathetic with a lot of the things that you say. It seems to be correct that rumours can be can be justified, true. Conspiracy theories can be true, justified, important. But it also seems to be blindingly obvious that rumours can be unjustified and false, and conspiracy theories can be unjustified and false. And you, you, you made this quite telling remark at the end that you said the, the sort of status of rumours had to be improved, but simply showing that they can be true and justified and conspiracy theories can be true and justified isn't enough to say that we need to, we need to know how often mm. they are true and how often they're not true. And it seems to me as the victim of both rumours and conspiracy <laughs> theories, there's a lot to be said against both of them uh, in many cases. And, and I wonder if you could tell us, you know, roughly why we should, we should hold them in higher regard how often they are likely to be true and important, and, and how we can tell when they will be true and important. Well, good question. I, I don't say they should be held in high regard. They, they should, simply shouldn't be. The epistemic attitude towards rumour as such should be quite neutral. Uh, it depends on the circumstance. Now, we saw some indication of, uh, in the case of rumours, ones that are more likely to be true are those which move amongst established institutional settings. So workplace rumours have very high levels of reliability. Uh, rumours travelling through troops, as long as they're fairly stably um, <coughs> disposed, uh, are very highly reliable. Uh, rumours that tend to be much less reliable are ones moving through crowds, people who don't know each other and are hampered by the inability uh, to judge the reliability of their informants, uh, and rumours about um, you know, sudden emergencies tend to be less reliable for essentially intuitively possible. <coughs> Uh, reasons. Now, I did say, uh, you said you know, rumours about yourself. Now, I think it's important to distinguish rumours from gossip. Uh, I'm really, there aren't a lot of philosophers around who are doing rumours, but there's an awful lot of philosophers around who are doing gossip. And gossip is usually treated as an ethical issue, a specifically ethical issue. Uh, I think rumour is interesting principally as an epistemic uh, issue. Now, what's the difference between rumour and gossip? I think two simple differences, though they're overlapping concepts, it's possible for something to be both. Uh, a rumour, uh, a gossip, gossip is essentially about someone. It's, it's, a, it's a personal, there's always a gossip piece, someone is about. Rumour doesn't have to be about someone, you have rumours about earthquakes, rumours about uh, quite impersonal subject matters. The second is, and this is the first feature of rumours, I think rumours uh, can't be first hand. They have to be at several steps from an eyewitness account. Uh, gossip, at least characteristically, is first-hand or very close to an original eyewitness account. Now, uh, <coughs> uh, so uh, that's on the front. On the conspiracy theory front, I don't offer any advice whatsoever on what kind of conspiracy theories are likely to be true and what kind of false. Because I've got no idea what a conspiracy theory is. Uh, uh, you know, different people, as I say, mean different things by it. In the end, it all avoids... definition of conspiracy theory, though? So, no, I offer no definition anymore. I used to. Yeah. Aha. Uh -huh. 
<laughs> I just offer other people and say, you know, what's going wrong with that? Because I don't think the expression should be used. I don't. I think it, we've got we've got thousands of years of rational discussions about what's likely and what isn't without using this vulnerable expression. And I think ideally we should go back to that. But uh, I'm not sure we can. Okay, Simon. <coughs> Am I for You did say that there are less conspiracy theories around now than there used to be. So you have no, some idea what they are. I know, I said that there's less conspiracism around, yes. But the, the, yes. <laughs> fair, right. fair point, you've got me there. Uh, <laughs> what, what I've suggested is that what, what's, what has happened is that people are much more reluctant these days to attribute conspiracy and in general malice or secretive behaviour or deceptive behaviour to the part on the part of powerful people. People are much more reluctant to do so because of this rhetoric which has gone up in the last few decades. Okay, I have a more significant observation, I think. Um, so, uh, thank you, it's a very provocative uh, talk, but I felt like you were talking past uh, your opponents in many cases, and you were helped in that by, by uh, Sunstein and, and Bermuda, not being very precise in, in uh, their claims about what they were talking about. So, they gave this purely descriptive definition of what a conspiracy theory theory was, and then said that they were restricting their attention to uh, false and harmful conspiracy theories, theories, and then made some recommendations uh, referring to, uh, intending to be talking about false and harmful ones, uh, but perhaps not being clear enough uh, that that's what they were doing. Um, in the case of rumours, um, you also define them in a purely descriptive way, so you gave us two conditions of a rumour which you said were jointly sufficient. Um, that they have to spread through many in informants and that they uh, must lack official status uh, which, by which you intended to say that they were promulgated through uh, that, that they weren't promulgate, promulgated through an institution uh, that has official status not, that's not official in an epistemic sense um, and uh, these struck me as just the wrong definitions of the terms that we're talking about people that say that rumours are bad or conspiracy theories are bad uh, don't have in mind purely descriptive definitions of the terms. These are um, thick epistemic concepts, if you like. We have something that's very familiar in ethics uh, called thick ethical concepts, thick moral concepts, um, that operate in a similar way. So if you talk about courage, uh, you might think uh, it's a certain kind of uh, good facing up to danger. Um, now, you could give us a talk all about courage and say courage has been overrated because, after all, courage is just facing up to danger. And look, people display this facing up to danger all the time in bad contexts. Uh, so this guy in France who is busy shooting soldiers and, and Jewish schoolchildren uh, is displaying courage in that sense, uh, but it's not good. And then we'll have to agree with you that that courage has long been overrated. That wouldn't be a very good argument, because when you were talking about courage under your definition, uh, you wouldn't be talking about what the rest of us have always been talking about when we say courage is a good thing and you ought to undertake it. Now you did say something to address this point when you talked about rumours, um, but I'm afraid I just didn't understand uh, how your objections were supposed to be objections. So you talked about objections to saying that rumours are uh, necessarily unjustified or unreliable. Um, and the three that I, that I uh, took from you were, uh, well, we need to differentiate rumours from other uh, kinds of unreliable testimony. Well, you gave us a way to do that. You said. Um, that rumours must spread through many informants. So we could say that rumours are unreliable plus have the two conditions that oh, you... I didn't suggest rumours are unreliable. No, I'm saying these are your objections to saying that rumours are, are um, unreliable or unjustified. Right, so you're objecting to defining rumour as a thick epistemic concept. Right, 
Um, so, so, so one was, well, we need to distinguish, we, we, we need to be able to differentiate rumours from other kinds of unjustified uh, belief or testimony. But, oh, yes, but, but, but with your descriptive conditions, we could still do that. Mm. Um, you said that um, this would mean that we had to determine that a claim was unreliable or unjustified before determining that it's a rumour. Um, but that's not the case. I mean, that's not the case with courage that we that we have to determine that some uh, some kind of facing up to danger is good before we determine its courage. It's the same thing, right? When as we determine it's good and that it's a facing up to danger, we also determine that it's courageous. So the same with uh, rumours. We don't need to pr uh, to prior to that determine that it's, uh, that it's um, a, a good thing or a bad thing. And, um, and you said people uh, advising that uh, you shouldn't believe rumours aren't just making a semantic claim. Um, it was unclear to me if you do define rumour in a thick way, so if you define uh, rumour as a kind of uh, unreliable uh, testimony with the kind of features that you outlined, um, wh why would they be making just a semantic claim if they say don't believe rumours? Okay. Can I deal with the first point? I mean, uh, <coughs> uh, it's true. Can I Said we propose to focus on false, harmful, and unjustified conspiracy theories. Nonetheless, their paper is called conspiracy theories. Nonetheless, constantly throughout it, they refer to conspiracy theories, and that's their definition of it. Now, if they want to retitle their paper "false, harmful, unjustified conspiracy theories" and stick that in every single time they mention it, then their project is going to be consistent. Well, but then the absurdity comes forward. Why is false? harmful and unjustified conspiracies particularly important. Why are you conflating false, harmful, unjustified conspiracies with conspiracy theories? It's like, uh, you know, imagine someone uh, writing philosophy of science, and they say, I'm particularly interested in false, harmful, <coughs> dangerous science the, science, the science that you shouldn't believe, but from now on, I'm just going to keep referring to science, and I'm going to present this as a paper on science. Now, what's wrong with that should be you know, obvious, right? The same thing goes for the stuff on rumours. Now, the book is called On Rumours. It's not called False Rumours. It's not called Harmful Rumours. It's not called Unjustified False Harmful Rumours. But that's actually what it's about. But there is no account whatsoever given of why that's an interesting topic and why rumours in general, which is what it purports to be about, is not the actual topic of the book. So <coughs> that's why. Uh, the but second point. You're, you're just assuming your definition, your 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 your, your descriptive I'm just definition. His definition. When you say that, I'm just following his definition. Right. Well, I think that they just change the definition. Okay. Yeah, yeah, sorry, we've got a lot of questions, so we need to move this on. If they did just change the definition, the absurdity of their project would be evidence, and the malice of their project, the one about having secret agents infiltrate people who come up with things which, in their opinion, are false, harmful, and so on would be obvious, and you know, his claims to being liberal would be exposed to what they are. Okay, we've got one over here. Um, uh, two quick questions. Uh, how do you distinguish uh, rumour and urban myth, um, where urban myth has the same mode of unofficial uh, multiple transmission, uh, but um, very often the content uh, seems inherently implausible uh, from a point of view that isn't carried ahead by the urban myth. Uh, the can, I, can I jump in on that one? Yeah, sure. I, I do have a section on uh, the urban myth in here, which I treat, uh, many people treat as separate from 
uh, rumours, but I, it fits my definition of a rumour, so it's a kind of rumour. It's one which is, as you note, characteristically unreliable, uh, and it has certain particular features which make it identifiable as unreliable, uh, and the most important of those is its tendency to move from <coughs> time and place and become updated to fit a particular time and place. And I've got an amusing anecdote in there about uh, something that happened to me on that uh, on that very topic. But uh, yeah, that's that's the main feature that allows you to identify an urban legend as an urban legend is you know oh, I've heard that somewhere else before. Only it happened to someone else in a different context. In some of the details altered around. And then, you know, once you're starting to notice that, you can start to deconstruct it and see why people would believe it, even though it is apparently implausible, even though it appears to be something that's popping up all over the place. And then the second quick uh, question has to do with leaks, uh, where it seems to be a combination of uh, the um, authority of uh, experts uh, who have a confined distribution of their views within government or organizations, which are then revealed outside of the intended audience, giving apparently uh, additional uh, justification because of the particular relationship to official authority. And I was thinking that that seemed to be something that should be very, very interesting in the context of your other discussion. Yeah, look, uh, it is interesting. I'm, it caught me on the hop. I'm not quite sure what to say about it uh, immediately, but uh, <clears throat> I mean, leaks are, you know, they're not ob obviously not official statements, but uh, I, I wouldn't classify them as rumours either because at least typically they involve first hand knowledge on the part of the leakee. Um, so, um, uh, now that's interesting, but I don't know if Okay, had a question over here. I've changed my mind. Thank All you. right, no question then, Bennett. I just wanted to challenge uh, the sort of. I, I didn't find your your explanation of what a rumor was very parsimonious with how I understand uh, rumors. So it seems to me I'll just give a kind of a practical example to illustrate. So suppose I'm talking to Simon and I say um, I say to him based on a sort of true experience I say. Uh, Julian tells me that he saw Steve stealing the chocolates. <laughs> and, you know, I'm just being honest, and Julian was being honest. Steve doesn't know he's been observed. Uh, it seems like what I'm doing here isn't passing on a rumour, I'm just passing on a report. At least that's how it seems to me. Whereas if I said, maybe, maybe in a different scenario, and I think this happens really often, I might think, well, I might think one of two things. I might think, uh, well, I don't want to get Julian in trouble. Okay, um, can I just jump in? I wouldn't count that as a rumor either. I mean, I, okay. many informed. <coughs> that's one informed. All right, so, but, but just, you know, we could imagine a, a longer string. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no, I might, so I might imagine that I, I don't want to cause problems for Julian. Maybe I think Simon doesn't think Julian's a reliable source, but I think Julian's a reliable source, and I, I think that it's true. I want Simon to think it's true. So instead of saying Julian saw Steve uh, steal the chocolates, I'll just say, I heard Steve. Uh, it was Steve who stole the chocolates. Now, I think we do that a lot. And for me, sort of intuitively anyway, that's where it becomes a rumour, and, and that's, it's this element of the anonymization uh, of the original source of the information that makes it a rumour, yeah, rather than a kind of a re-reporting of a fact. I've, I've heard a few people make this suggestion, but it's not uh, those who, who really work in this area I've never seen actually suggest, but in discussions I've heard a lot of people suggest it. Now, uh, it's certainly not sufficient 
but to be a rumour for that come from an anonymous source. A leak, for instance, is scandalously wrong, but I would classify that as a rumour. Uh, if you pick up uh, sort of probably the Guardian in here, there's an article on the front page which doesn't say who wrote it. Uh, now it's not a rumour. Front page before in the newspaper, but it's a journalist who's not named. Uh, so anonymisation is clearly not uh, sufficient uh, for rumour. Uh, I see no reason that it has to be necessary, but uh, it, it is in fact, if it has passed through many informants, going to be quite common <coughs> that the original source will not be, you, know, you won't know who's, who's named it, you might know other things about it, you might have some information. Well, I mean, I guess then we just sort of differ on what the kind of our intuitive understanding of what a rumour is. But I think I can explain your intuition by saying, well, this is just the fact that it's many removed from the original source, that it's very likely that you're not going to know who the original person is. Right, but um, so I just think that if this was indeed part of the definition of what a rumour was, it might explain why people had a particular epistemic uh, attitude towards it. It could still be the case that you should believe certain kinds of rumours if you think they've been vetted by reliable people along the way. <laughs> but because you don't know who the original source of information was, you would always have a certain amount of scepticism. Uh, look, uh, knowing the original source or knowing the original source of a particular piece of information is sometimes <coughs> one reliable one piece of evidence you can use. Uh, sometimes it's not, it's never on its own enough. Uh, it's just one piece of information that you can sometimes use. And uh, yeah, I mean, obviously that's one fact that we take into account. But then on the other hand, you've got the fact that a lot of people have presumably endorsed it on the way, and that weighs against it to some extent. I see no reason in general to think that the form, your consideration, always or typically outweighs the latter consideration, the fact that it's been to a large body of peer group, uh, sort of peer assessment. Uh, so, yeah, I don't see any, any general uh, conclusion about the unreliability of rooms to be drawn from that. Um, this one, just one point I do want to make about this, I think, while we're on the topic, uh, I think there is an important lesson about uh, the procedure of history. It's a very common thing in contemporary history debates to find one side of the debate accusing the other of relying on, on, um, on rumour. Uh, many of you are Australian and be aware of Kit Winshuttle, of course, and standard procedure that he uses in historical debates. He's accused his enemy, say Henry Reynolds, of relying on rumour, and he'll say, look, all these so-called massacres of Aboriginal populations back in the 18th, uh, late 18th, early 19th century, all of this is based on rumour, hearsay, etc., etc. Uh, if we look at the official documents, the original documents, we find there are no references to massacres and so on. Now, <coughs> this is um, perfectly, you know, I, this, this constitutes my defense of rumor, a defense of those historians who do say, look, rumor is a perfectly legitimate source of evidence. And in a time of systematic, in a period of systematic falsification of official documents, it's often the very best source of available evidence, even if we don't know what the original source was. And this goes on in historical debates all the time. I mean, um, what's his name? Here's the Holocaust denial, the English Holocaust denial. I mean, really? Yeah, it's exactly the same uh, strategy. He uses, you know, the Nazis. You look at the official documents, where is the order saying exterminate the Jews? It's not there. Historians have to use official documents. We don't rely on hearsay, a rumour, and so on. Um, <clears throat> third example, well, well, Conquest came quite notorious, of course, for saying that the best source of information about Stalinist Russia in the 30s is rumour. And he was absolutely torn apart by a lot of his colleagues. But, you know, history has vindicated him. He was absolutely right about that. The source of information 
uh, about what was going on in, in Stalinist Russia in the 1930s uh, was, is. Okay, I'll take two more questions because we started a bit late, so we can just make them very quick. Yeah, well, one of them was answered anyway, so I got a two-second question. You came up with a coincidence there as to sort of a way of dealing with a sort of uh, animus towards uh, conspiracy theories. And presumably you're aware that the more serious end of the conspiracy theorist sort of spectrum, people refer to themselves as uh, deep political analysis or parapolitical analysis. Well, I mean, I, I, again, I, I don't know what you mean by the deep end of no, uh, I mean, the conspiracy theory spectrum. Uh, what, uh, what I see is, you know, there's a tendency to use this label to uh, oh, can I say attach to people who are obviously nutcases, and that you and I probably agree are nutcases. No, no, no I'm speaking as one. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, saying, I'm saying people who are more serious about the study of it, who refer to parapolitical analysis, or deep political analysis, rather than use the term conspiracy theories, which they reject for all the reasons you said. And I just wondered if you'd come across that. Oh, right, no, I, I, I wasn't sorry uh, for that comment. About, uh, uh, it, look, there, there is a, it's, this is a general tendency in the debate, which, which I am highlighting here, and we see all the time, is people will cite an example of a conspiracy theory, typically one involving aliens or something, uh, you know, which they and they assume that their audience will assume do not believe, and then say, this is characteristic of conspiracy theories. Now, this is you know, no different from saying, look, here's an undesirable foreigner. This is what foreigners are like. Uh, and, but, you know, people who obviously wouldn't accept this kind of argument, what needs to be connected, of course, is some connection between being a foreigner and being undesirable. Similarly, there has to be some connection between being a conspiracy theory and being objectionable in whatever way it may be, false, irrational, harmful, uh, as the case may be. Uh, and it's, you know, taking some example like um, <coughs> Boswell, for example, the Boswell conspiracy theory as a paradigm of conspiracy theory is no different from uh, you know, taking phlogiston theory as a paradigm of scientific theories. Uh, the fact that some of them are false is you can draw no phenomena from that. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, I think we're going to have to stop now, unfortunately. So, um, sorry we didn't give as much time for questions as all the questions, but uh, thanks for a great discussion, and thank you again, David. <laughs>